<clears throat> when we look at, at uh, what we've, we've looked at so far in the book of Revelation, there's uh, been the various sequences that we've looked at. We've looked at the message to the seven churches. We have looked at the throne scenes of chapter 4 and 5 of both God and Christ uh, in, their, in their position of dominion and power. We have looked at the breaking of the seals and the going forth of the gospel and the various adversaries that are being brought against the gospel with the, the opening of all of the seals, the reserved those uh, who are faithful in heaven, and the sending forth of the trumpets. And as the trumpets are blown, various things have happened of increasing complexity and increasing effect on the, the earth. And now we're coming into chapter 12, and we noticed uh, some things there in chapter 12 having to do with this great red dragon and uh, identified as, uh, chapter 12 identifies this individual as, in uh, the English version, the devil and Satan. And uh, there's, there's two Greek words that are used there. The first one that's translated devil literally means uh, the one who is bringing a false accusation. This is the false accusation that you see brought against God in the book of Job. It's your fault that Job is like he is. And whether you read it that way or not, that's the intent. It's a charge against God. Job is only faithful because of what you are doing. And so this individual is not only bringing false claims and charges and lies to people, but he also made that charge against God. Jesus justified both God and mankind in his death, and we've got to keep that in mind too as we, as we progress on through the book. But the second one is Satan, and this is the adversarial aspect of it, which is placing him in a position of continuing to bring up a charge before God, even though that charge has gone away. The blood of Christ justifies us of sin. It removes that sin from being accounted against us. But Satan is still bringing it up. This individual sins, therefore I own his soul. And that continues to be broadcast on through. So everything that we see being done from here on with the red dragon is in one of those two categories. And in specifically working on the earth, it is bringing up charges against individuals on the earth and trying to drive those individuals away from God any way he can. He uses the sea beast, which is discussed in the first 10 verses of chapter 13, and then from verse 11 on through uh, chapter 13, the earth beast, and we will look at that Wednesday night. Continuing on into chapter 14, where we have got the great harlot. And so as we see the enemies that Satan is using against mankind, uh, these are the three that we'll be discussing, and this morning we'll be discussing the beast from the sea in uh, chapter 13. <clears throat> If you have the ESV, it might read just a little bit different. 
one of the things, like Brian said, there's so much information and how much do you discuss. We could spend a couple of classes just talking about the differences in the translation between chapters 12 and 13 here based upon the Texas Receptus of the King James and New King James or the critical text of the English Standard Version and the, the differences in the documents that put those Greek texts together and the subsequent translation of those things. And so as some of you might have the first verse of chapter 13, and the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore as the last verse of chapter 12. And that's one of those things that, that kind of gets moved around when we look at the, at the different versions the way they exist right now. But if you read down through chapter 12 and eliminate the chapter break, the logical sequence of events is here is the red dragon and all that he is doing and all of a sudden he is planting himself on the seashore. And the question comes up sometimes, well, why the seashore? Well, one of these beasts is going to be coming out of the sea and the other, place is going, the other one is going to be coming out of the land. What's in between? So the red dragon is placing himself now in a position where he is between the two beasts and can control the two beasts. <clears throat> One of the translations has John, the writer of the uh, book of Revelation, being the one who is standing on the seashore. And, and uh, again, that, that's, that is not a misprint but it is the way the textual configuration of the Greek text as looked upon by the translators viewed the thing at the time. And there is no pronoun in the Greek text. And so it's a judgmental as to who is standing on the seashore. Logically, if you eliminate the break between 12 and 13, logically, the continuation is it's a red dragon standing there. And so that's at least the, the way Sean and I view that one. And so the, as we look on down through chapter 12, as we discussed, you're using the faithful of Israel to bring forth Messiah. How many times in Israel did Satan try to stop the bringing forth of Messiah? If you follow that on through and read it diligently, you find such things as even uh, Judah, who was forecast by prophecy to bring forth the king. How many times did Judah refuse to produce an heir? How many times did something occur to try to eliminate the seed of David? And you've got the daughter of uh, Ahab and Jezebel, Athaliah who marries into the family of David's descendants and tries to kill off all of the heirs of David's throne. She's unsuccessful. And so as they follow Israel through, we can see Satan continually working that to try to eliminate the bringing forth of Messiah through the killing off of the seed chain all the way from Abraham through David through the coming Christ. 
But God, working with Israel, brings forth his son into the world. The devil tried to destroy Jesus throughout the course of his time here. How many times were there plots to take him and kill him? How many times did it occur or did it appear that, no, uh, he's, he's, he's lost. And even with his death on the cross, where's the victory? It was overcome when he rose from the dead. The death, devil is defeated through the death, the burial, and the resurrection. And that resurrection is the big bone of contention that the red dragon has and what he is leading the sea beast and the land beast to accomplish. He continues to assault God's people. He was unsuccessful in stopping the birth of Christ. He was unsuccessful in killing the Christ because Christ rose from the dead. So what's left? You and I. Attacking God's people is the only thing that Satan can do. And so God's people can experience victory over him only because of the provisions that God made through his son and the fact that we are justified by faith in the son, chapter 5 of Romans. Uh, and looking at that as it comes on down through uh, yeah, well, chapter 4 through chapter 8 of, of the book of Romans, we'll explain that. So we'll get into chapter 13. We are looking at the first instrument that the red dragon can call forth to afflict the children of, of God. And this chapter will introduce two enemies, the one from the sea and the one from the land. The devil is one working behind the scene, regardless of what happens, regardless of, of who is being worshipped. When Jezebel brought down her, her Baal from up north and set it up in Israel, and the people were bowing down to that Baal, who were they actually worshiping? Who? Satan. Who's behind it? Satan is. And everything that you look at, all false religion, all idols, Anything that draws an individual away from God, who's behind it? Satan is. And that's his, his uh, condition now. He is using various avenues to accomplish his purposes. And he works the same way in the lives of Christians today. That enticement is hanging out there, that carrot that's dangling off there to, to lead you away from God. Satan is behind it in one form or another. And Revelation 13, 1 shows us who is really behind that. So if we read that, it says, The red dragon stood on the sands of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns, seven heads, and on his horns were seven, or pardon me, ten diadems. And on his heads were blasphemous names. We could spend another class period or two talking about the, the various headdresses and ornamentation on those going back to the high priest and coming on and looking at 
at the symbology that is behind that, but all it boils down to is that when an individual is wearing a crown, whatever is on the front of that is symbolic of whatever is accomplishing or to be accomplished. The high priest had faithful to the Lord across the front. So as he officiated for the people, the acknowledgement was everything he was doing was for the Lord. And the headdress of the Persians was the same thing. It identified the king and his power and his position, and so on down through. So now we've got an individual that has the horns, the crowns, or a headdress, and then that headdress is ornamented with blasphemies against God. The beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain. And his fatal wound was healed. The whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast saying, Who is like the beast? And who is able to wage war with him? There was given to him a mouth, speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. He opened his mouth and blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And remember, we talked before about the church is also the tabernacle, and each individual is a tabernacle as such. If God is in us and working through us, it was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Does that seem like a rather emphatic statement? All who dwell upon the earth will worship this beast. Everyone whose name is not written, where? Everyone whose name is not written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. Now, <clears throat> when we look at when we look at those that uh, reading and and uh, one of the first things that comes up. What's, what's, the, what's the appearance of this beast? His general appearance is what? Like a leopard. What's, uh, what's, what's so neat about a leopard? Okay. Camouflage. He's hidden. He is uh, uh, kind of stealthy. 
when you add the speed of the leopard and the stealthiness, he is able to get in and do things that other critters can't. And uh, the, the, he has a degree of power to give him the strength and the stealthy, subversive nature. Uh, it says his feet are like who or what? Like a bear. What's a bear's feet like? <laughs> uh, if, if a bear was to swipe you upside your head, where would your head be? Not, no longer on your body. When a bear comes in and, and uses them big feet and claws to stomp on things, what's left after he's done stomping? Not much. So you've got a swift beast that is stealthy, that at the same time has a great deal of power from both, both aspects. And what's the other thing it said about him? Say? Mouth of a lion. Mouth of a lion. What's the mouth of a lion? Have you ever been to a zoo and heard a lion roar? You know, the Phoenix Zoo is over here in Papago Park. There are times when that lion gets upset about something or other, and you can hear him over on College Avenue, or College Street, which is about, what, 63rd Street if you use numbers. That's over the hill and down into Scottsdale. The voice of a lion is, is rather powerful and it carries for a great distance. And so if you have this very strong, powerful, stealthy beast who has a mouth which can be heard above the tumult of the world and all that sort of stuff, and he is spouting blasphemies. What is the average ear out there in the world going to hear? The blasphemies. <clears throat> Where's the dragon at this point? If, if, we, if we go with the if we go with the accepted versions of, of uh, the text, the red dragon is standing on the seashore. Uh, the, the, the word specifically is he is standing on the sand of the sea. And where's the sand from the sea? The sea washes it up on land and you wind up with the seashore. Therefore, we call it he's standing on the seashore. And so he is in a position now to maintain control over both the sea and the land. Earlier in the book of Revelation, somebody came down and set one foot on the sea and one foot on the land. I'll let you go back and review that. But it is a place where you've got authority and control over both aspects. When you look at the seashore and when you look at the sea and the islands of the sea as it's used in prophetic literature, what's being talked about? Is it just the Mediterranean Sea or the Red Sea? Or is the main concern all of the land that that body of water touches? It's the latter. When you're talking about the sea, the islands of the sea or the lands of the sea, 
or the shores of the sea, you're talking about all of the nations of the earth. At that time, what was the primary nation? No. Where did Israel come from? The primary nation is Israel. The primary city is Jerusalem, Zion, in that respect. If you are not of Israel or Zion, and the new Zion is the church, where are you? The Greek word is ethnos. It's where we get our word ethnic. If you are not of the nation, you are of the rest of the world. So you're looking at the one nation, which used to be Israel, and is now the body of Christ, the church, and everything else then is ethnic to that nation. It is foreign to that nation. So you're looking at all of the foreign nations. So coming up out of the sea, you have a being who has control over and has give, been given power and authority over the nations of the earth. Does that remind you of something in Matthew? Go to Matthew chapter 4. The temptation. What is the third temptation that Satan offered to Jesus? If you bow down and worship me, I will give you all these nations. What has Satan just given to this beast coming up out of the sea? All of those nations. You have power and authority over all of those nations. Who does he not have power over? The church. The church. Well, that's Revelation chapter 13, verses 1 through 10. I guess we can quit there. No, not really. It's not quite that, that easy. So we ask the question, why is the dragon standing on the seashore? Regardless of the power that is delegated to the sea beast and later the power that is going to be given to the land beast, who is still ultimately in control? Satan. We see that same relationship between the Father and the Son. When Jesus says, all power and authority hath been given unto me both in heaven and on earth, who is not subject to Jesus? The Father, the one that gave him that power. And so this is that same transfer of power it's all mine, but I'm going to give it to you to control. Uh, so who's going to do the dirty work among the nations that Satan wants done? This sea beast. What's the main thing God wants us to take away from all of the language giving concerning this enemy? What's the one thing that was in there that applies to us? I don't know. The word formable comes to mind. The word what? Formable. 
okay? But who has power and control? And over what? This beast is given power and authority and control over all of the nations of the earth except what power and authority does he have over the church? Zero. He has absolutely no power over the church. If he is going to gain power over an individual who is bought by the blood of Christ, who's going to give it to him? Who? That individual. You can give up your protection, but that beast can't take it from you. What are some of the things that this beast does? <clears throat> What's one thing that he does? Okay. He makes war with the saints. <laughs> do, you ever, do you ever feel that you're at war with the world? Has the world ever done anything to you that you really wonder why it did that? We live in a we live in a pretty good country. Sir. It makes me think that whenever people accuse God of why did God do this to me, I think they have the wrong they're giving credit to the wrong person. Yes. Yes. Most assuredly. <clears throat> so when we look at <clears throat> Who has power and authority over the, the nations of the world? Really, politically. He does, but what's the agent within that government that rules? Isn't there some form of government there? We have, we have three institutes in government. We have the judicial, we have the legislative, and we have the executive. I think, right? Seems to me that nine times I raised my hand and said that I would, without reservation, defend the, the Constitution and abide by laws and rules and all that sort of stuff. Within what constraints and limits? A lot of people don't understand that, that those military oaths carry a caveat. Within the United States, when you make an oath like that, who's number one? What's on the dollar bill? In God we trust. God's number one. And it used to be understood, at least back in the 50s when I took that first oath, that number one was God. And if the government wanted me to do something which is opposed to God, who would I follow? I'd follow God. And that would stand up. Would it stand up today in court? Things have changed a little bit. And so a lot of the freedoms that we used to have and a lot of the, the, the abilities that we had have been restrained and constrained by changes to our government. Uh, 1950s, our biggest enemy we thought was Russia. We, we were fooled. 
from a number of aspects. But those governments of the world, are they set up primarily to take care of the individuals and follow God? Or are they set up to follow their own wants and desires? How many, how many, how many governments are of the, I can't even keep track of how many governments we have or how many countries we have in the world nowadays. But how many of them are set up so that they are leading people toward God? Does our federal government lead us toward God? I don't see it. All of the governments of the world, one way or another, are out for themselves, which is a device of what that beast is doing. When Satan gives him power and control over the nations of the earth, is that power and control over the nations of the earth leading toward God or leading toward Satan? Definitely not toward God. So when this statement is there to make, wage, make war with the saints and all, that's, that's where that power is coming from. It's not from a... It's not from something that is in the spiritual realm, but it is something which has been planted in the physical realm that is being influenced by that spiritual realm. Satan's influence through the governments of the world. What does verse 10 tell us about the fate of this beast? Verse 10 says simply, if anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. And then the last clause of that verse has to do with what? Here is the perseverance of the saints. Here is the perseverance and faith of the saints. Have you got faith that regardless of what happens on this earth, that what the, the governments of this earth may do to you, or what the circumstances of their conflicts, their wars, and everything else that happens in this world, regardless of how bad it gets physically, have you got the faith that you're still under the power and control of God? That's, that's where our faith ought to be. And so, when we look at, at the derivation of these beasts, if we can use that term, and we've talked before in, in this class on, on Revelation concerning Daniel chapter 2, and this big old statue which uh, Nebuchadnezzar had and, and the implications of it revealed through Daniel, how many kingdoms are there? Five. I see five. But in the statue, the head of gold is Babylon. The torso, the upper torso of silver represents the Medes and the Persians. 
What's the dominant thing about media in Persia? We'll get to it in just a little bit when we start talking about the next one. The brass, the lower torso and hips, is the kingdom of Greece. Rome is identified as, as uh, iron. And then the feet of the statue are iron mixed with clay. And during that particular time of disruption of that kingdom, what's going to occur? A little bitty... Birth of Christ and the establishment of the kingdom that will expand throughout the world and never end, of which we are a part of. So during that period of time, things happen. The Thank you. Looking at Daniel chapter 7, which parallels Daniel chapter 2 in greater detail. Here we, we start looking, we're not looking at metals, but we're looking at animals. <clears throat> now the beast that's coming out of the sea, the body was leopard, the feet were bear, the mouth was, or the head was lion. When we look at this vision in Daniel chapter 7, there are four beasts. One of them is a lion. And that lion is representing Babylon, which was the head of gold. The bear is representative of Medo-Persia. And here is the strength and the power. Persia could not do anything at the time until they made the alliance with, with the media. Media was the strong armies, the powerful army force that finally defeated Babylon. Darius was not a Greek. Darius was a Mede. And he is the one that took Babylon. So we've got the lion, the bear, and then the leopard, which is the Grecian Empire. And the thing about Greece, when it's represented over in chapter 8, I believe it is, by the goat with the long horn coming in from the west, to the east, and the figure of that is speed. And here it is, the speed in, of, of the leopard. How fast, how fast did Greek take over the world? By the time Alexander was 33 years old, he'd done it. He was, he was sad because he had nothing left to conquer. So the, the expansion of Greece was very rapid, and that is the, the speed of the leopard. And then the fourth thing that is in this vision is the great terrible beast, symbolized by the dragon in this one. But a, a great beast which is not like the other three, but is more terrible and vicious and everything. And that is the great beast, which is, is uh, Rome. <coughs> and so when we look at, at Daniel and the vision of these beasts and its correlation to the empires at the time, and then we see this beast coming out of the sea, he's got all of those characteristics.
find that interesting. Everything that happened prior to the birth of Christ is now symbolized in the power and ferocity of this one beast coming up out of the sea. If we do a quick recap, <clears throat> Revelation chapter 13, we get a hint, if we come down through chapter 12 and into 13, the red dragon, the power and authority that he has been given. And again, who gave the red dragon power? God did, because the red dragon is Satan. Satan derives his power and authority from God the Father. Why? Yes. Even if you go back and look at, at uh, a study of Satan, where's Tommy Peeler when you need him? When you look at Satan in the book of Job, you're looking at an individual who is confronting God, and God tells him to go do things. What authority did Satan have to afflict Job? Very limited. God gave him certain things. He could, at first, he could do anything except touch him. And so, what did Satan use to afflict Job? Who killed his kids? No. Think, what does the scripture say? Not who gave them the power to do it, but what was used. There were individuals that came in and killed his sheep and, and the shepherds, that killed his camels and the herdsmen for them. There were earthquakes that destroyed other parts of it. Everything that, the, that Satan used was natural to the earth. Think about that. Go back and read it and study it. He didn't use any supernatural power. He used what was available to him in the earth. So now you're looking at this in Revelation and calling forth the beast of the sea and the beast of the land. Guess what Satan is using? What exists naturally in the nations of the earth and the earth itself to cause the damage. And I think the classes are out, and it's time for me to quit. So we're, we're going to continue with uh, verse 11 through the end of the chapter on Wednesday night. And if you have any questions, be free to ask. Now, I mentioned Tommy Peeler. He's got an excellent lesson on Satan, if you want to look it up on the Internet from uh, the Florida College lectures.